He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Might very well summarize, as many have argued, all the first 12 chapters, the Gospel of John. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus, sent from above, came to the Jewish people proclaiming this good news that he is the Christ, Son of God, sent from above. And yet they would not receive him. I've entitled our sermon today, We Reflect What and Who We Worship, Either for Our Ruin or Restoration. This is taken directly from Dr. G.K. Beale's book, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. In that book, Dr. Beale outlines the impact of idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of anything or anyone that takes the seat of the Lord, uh, that of highest reverence, or we might say for the foundation of your life, that of the greatest uh, depth and foundation. Uh, This is idolatry. And from the very beginning, with the fall of Adam, we see this outplayed. In Adam's fall, he begins, rather than reflecting and honoring and stewarding over creation for God's glory, he reflects a serpent. He's deceitful. He throws his wife under the bus, and we see sin reverberate, not only in death, but death of his own son, murdering his other son. What a catastrophe. God, in his love, though, is still working out his purpose. And he would bless Abraham and bring up a nation of Israel. And Israel would be given as a light to the nations, a blessing to the nations. And yet Israel, likewise, would chase foreign gods. They would chase and worship these foreign gods and become idolaters. And in this way, instead of blessing the nations, they would heighten the darkness of the nations, mimic the nations. And their pagan worship would reflect this. And and and, and in the idolatry, they would be led to greater and greater ruin. Ruinous ways with their bodies and their actions and behaviors would be led to just compounding Sin and sickness would take place all through the land. And so it is, we might say, like the old saying, you can have your cake, but you can't eat it too. Someone said you can have your cake and you can't eat it too, but the case with Israel is that they can have their cake, which is their desire of idolatry, but they will be eaten by their cake. God tells them, because God is just and holy and good, you can Worship the idols of the world. You can worship created things. You can chase after the idols, which Scripture tells us are actually behind them are demons. You can pursue them, but you will receive their same fate. You will become darkened in your understanding, blinded and deaf to the working and the words of God. And it will lead you to ruinous destruction, just as is the fate of each and every idol, an idol worshiper. And in John chapter 12, at the major turning point from what scholars have called the book of signs, where Jesus has done all this public ministry and signs, things are about to turn very private in his private ministry, and the road to suffering will increase. But in this, we reach this heightened demonstration of John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So as we look at this text, we expound what Jonathan read for us. We see a reality that Israel, the people that were to be a light, are so darkened in their idolatry, their worship of man-made traditions, and their longing to maintain power, that they are blinded to the light before them, and they reach these ruinous conclusions. And as a reader who knows Christ, we know the gospel, we know the good news, we've turned and placed our faith and trust in Christ, we read this, and we see the Pharisees' interactions, and we cry out and say, what are you doing? 
why are you doing this? And yet they respond in the ruinous ways that come with idolatry. In the same way, we can look at our world and see destructive, terrible things taking place. And we say, what are you doing? And yet it's the response of idolatrous living. We could look at our own lives before we came to Christ and say, what was I thinking? It's often the fruit then of ruinous consequences that come with idolatry, elevating someone or something to the things of God that lead to our ruin. But the good news is that those who trust in Christ receive eternal life, receive restoration for our bones and healing, a promise in which God will make all things right and He will reign forever. That's the good news that we have in light of the heavy but serious and bad news that we'll begin to unpack here as we're going to note three different Old Testament texts that John brings out for us, Jesus references, that for the Israelites should have gone off like a neon flashing sign of their own idolatry. As we note the first component, that Israel's leaders worshipped idols and therein reflected their blind and darkened idols to their own destruction. You've heard the saying, you become what you eat, we become what we worship, right? That's what's taking place. Israel's leaders worshipped idols and therein reflected their blind and darkened idols to their own destruction. Now, I'm going to give you a number of Old Testament texts. I'd love for you to read them with me. The first we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter 42. If you're turning in your Bible, that's page 603 in the Pewback Bible. Isaiah 42. I was thinking about this. Isaiah 42. This is a reference that he's alluding to. We could say with pretty good confidence, with the light and darkness distinction. But Isaiah 42 is a text that we actually preached in December in the Advent series. That seems like 15 years ago, right? That was seven months ago, and it feels like it was forever ago. Am I the only one that feels that? I mean, this thing is crazy. That was, that was only seven months ago. And in these servant songs that we looked at, God promised of the servant that he would sin. He would ultimately make all things right. And Jesus alludes to this component here. So I'm going to read for us Isaiah chapter 42, verse 16, and then it will bring back to mind several things that Jonathan read for us, verse 35 and 36 and verse 46. So remember all the light and darkness language. Here's, I believe, what's being alluded to. Isaiah 42, 16, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, and paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. God's purpose for Israel, His purpose for His people, He's still working a purpose, even though they're, as Isaiah makes clear, they are a blind people. A blind people. Jesus then tells them as a reminder, so Jesus said to them back in John 12, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He's speaking to a blind and dark people and saying the good news is I'm the light, I'm right here. And as we saw last week, their longing for the light was not to follow and reflect the light and become sons of the light. In their darkness, their longing was to suffocate the light, to smother it. Their regret was that they didn't try to smother the light earlier. That's the ruinous, disastrous consequences of idol worship. Ruin rather than restoration. And Jesus tells them this good news in verse 46. 
I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is good news. This is the scandal of the gospel. In spite of this, he's saying to, to, to a multitude, a number of which long to have him killed earlier. These people literally, in their hearts, regretted that they didn't try to kill him earlier. Jesus speaks to them and to the crowd. If you will believe in me, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's the scandal of the gospel. Whether Pharisees or pagan backgrounds, experts in the law are completely absent, never hearing the gospel before, whether great-grandmothers or gang members, whether Jew or Gentile, to all who believe in Jesus, they may become sons of light. That's the good news. That's beautiful. Money is not bad, and yet the elevation to money to the position of idolatry is the root of all evil and all kinds of evil. Creation is good. God made it good. And yet the elevation of creation to the position of God is idolatry and leads to ruinous ends. And we can look simply around in ourselves and on the news and see the effects of this. Relationships are great and gifts of God from our triune God. The beauty and gift of relationships and COVID, how much more has that been impacted? I mean, let's just be real. Look around for a moment right now. We're not even yet, counting both services, we're not even hitting hardly 40% of our attendance. The reality of COVID and sickness and the reality of death is perhaps never more clear than it is today. And the longing for relationships is more hungry now perhaps than ever, at least in my recent memory. And yet relationships elevated to a point and position that only God can maintain will always lead to ruinous ends. The great gifts of God that take the place of God in our lives lead to ruin. That's what Jesus models out for Israel to understand and to grasp and to listen to. I'll read for you Deuteronomy 7. Actually, you can flip there. I may read it before you get there. It's a challenge. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Go! Deuteronomy 7. In this text, we have a warning that God gives to Israel not to intermarry with the pagan nations. And as a reminder, they would make different business transactions, which would be to give their children in marriage. That would form allegiances so that when trials came, they had this contract in place that they would be protected. And this is part of the judgment that God will give to Israel through Isaiah. He gives it to Judah because they're ultimately going, and rather than turning to God, they're looking to the superpower down toward the south. They're looking to Egypt to protect them from Babylon. And they're, and they're exchanging. They're giving away their children in marriage. And they're intermarrying, and he does exactly what God warns them would take place here in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. Again, the danger of elevating relationships in any of creation and money and protection to the place of the Lord. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Lufkanites. 
was trying to think through our membership to make sure nobody lives in Lufkin right now, and I don't think we do. And if so, forgive me. Seven nations, more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You read that and you say, what? Why would they do that? Why? He says, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Here's the reason in verse 4, chapter 7. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, a similar idea is communicated to the church. What fellowship has light with darkness? You can't have two different foundations. And it shows its ruinous ends. Listen, I am not that old, but I've done marriage counseling for many different couples in many different ages. And when you have a couple that comes together with two different foundations, two different final authorities, they experience the ruinous consequences and the hardship and the conflict in every single area of their life. It's a natural result. And he warns them. He says, if you do this, if you take these relationships, you will worship idols. Your grandkids will be idol worshipers. And because I'm good and holy and just, I will judge your grandchildren just like I will judge the idols that they will elevate and sacrifice to. That's how good and holy our God is. And if you turn a little bit further back in Deuteronomy 29, we say, how could they be so blind? We read this, and, and I don't know about you, but I've read the Scriptures many times and just thought, God, would you do something like this today? Would you work a miracle in which nobody could possibly deny the reality of your working and your being and your true hope of salvation in Christ? And yet he reminds them, Jesus, who's just worked all of these signs that we've read so far, since January, we've We've read verse after verse of the great works that Jesus has done and the great words that he's spoken. And listen to what he quotes. Deuteronomy chapter 29, 2 through 4. He alludes back into their memories the blindness of Israel. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did. You saw what? You saw all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, speaking of Jesus, they still did not believe in him. We could see the most undeniable of miracles Unless God opens our eyes and our hearts to believe, we will not. We will double down in a denial and a hatred of God because His position is already filled with a custom idol that we on our own powers will not give up. We will become extra blind. In this, in Isaiah chapter 6, Verse 1 and 10, that's alluded to in this text as well, in verses 40 through 43, is exactly what happens in Isaiah. And the application is, is right here for us, crystal clear. In Isaiah chapter 6 text, we've, we've preached on that text before in the past, and in John, it's, it's good that we did, because in John, he's alluded to it now several times. In John chapter 6, Isaiah here stands before the throne, 
and he's filled with horror and shock at the glory of God, and he's horrified at his lips, his mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's aware of his sinfulness, and God has an angel come and take a coal and burn it on his lips. And, and in, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, many argue, many say, that when they would make their idols, they would say when the stone would come and they would burn that idol's lips, that little stump that they would take and worship, they wouldn't worship that. They would believe it represented some other god. And when the coal would come and touch that idol's lips, they believed that a spirit, a part of that god, that pagan idol that they were worshiping, which Scripture makes clear is actually demons, would come into that idol. Well, this scene reflects that. God brings this stone and he makes Isaiah clean. And his spirit indwells him to go forth to Judah who is in a constant state of enraging idolatry. And Isaiah goes out to proclaim the word of God. And God asks him this question, whom will I send? Who will go? And Isaiah is filled with boldness because the spirit of God is leading him. And he says, here I am, send me. And if I was writing Isaiah, as a preacher, I would say everyone responded by faith in Christ, and it was amazing. But that we know that's not what happens in the book of Isaiah, is it? The people doubled down in their rebellion. They hardened their hearts even more in their idol worship. They listened to false prophets that ditched their ears. And it leads to their ruin in captivity. But a remnant still believes. A remnant still believes. Believer in Christ, this is our calling. Proclaim the truth of the gospel. That yes, we live in a world that is marked by blindness. Yes, we have friends and family members and we turn on the news and we see people marked in blindness and walking in ruinous ways. But we know the good news. We know that there is true hope true love, true life, true forgiveness, true mission, true purpose in Jesus Christ, the light sent from above. And if they will come to believe in him, to worship him, they will receive eternal life. That's good news. That's the news we must double down very functionally. In this time in our culture, we must take advantage of the freedoms that our country has given to us, that have, that have recognized these freedoms given from God, that we can speak of the gospel without any fear of anything greater for the most part than social uncomfortableness. Awkwardness. And I'm not minimizing that. That's a, that's a thing. Make no mistake. The social pressure is powerful. But we have freedoms to proclaim the gospel and to give our lives to love people and to serve them sacrificially by pouring our lives out in service, being obedient to the Spirit, but proclaiming the goodness of the gospel. So our prayer for others, we must make our prayer specifically. I'm speaking to myself. We must make our prayer specifically. God, would you bring them from darkness to light? Would you give them eyes to see? Would you stop them from the ruinous idol worship that they love? Would you stop them? Stop them. Whatever you have to do, God, stop them and bring them to the light and use me to do so. I don't believe we can pray that consistently without that giving us a mark of unusual compassion 
in a world that is so quick to pound each other for anything possible. That's what darkness does. It runs on the rough path that Jesus makes straight. That's the good news for us. We know the good news. We're in the light. We go on to the final verses, 44 through 50, that finishes this book of signs, chapter 12. And in comparison to Israel, who's darkened in their idol worship, we have Jesus, who's the light sent from above, the proclaimer of the light. He does what Israel would not do. Jesus perfectly worshipped God and therein reflected and brought forth his light to the world, bringing salvation from destruction to all who believe in him. That's how chapter 12 finishes off. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. We've seen this so many times, and we'll see it in, in the Lord's prayer. The clear unity of purpose in essence, between the Father and the Son, that the Son will do everything that the Father has set out for Him to do. And as He says here, He speaks every word that the Father has given Him to speak. For God loves us that much. He's done the works, He's done the signs, and now we shift to the time and the road of suffering that will culminate in the greatest of signs, the resurrection from the dead. This is good news. For the message to, for us as believers that we gather together and we worship the Lord is that we look to Him and we're reminded He ran the race. He paid our debt. He's earned us salvation. We believe in Him and we worship Him and we rest in Him. That's the good news. And that all who believe, regardless of how ruined their life is, all who believe can have life in His name become sons of light. That's good news. That is a hope-filled message. And it is truth. That's what we must be willing to die for, to suffer for, to have discomfort for, to lean into awkwardness for. That's the good news. Jesus perfectly worshiped God and therein reflected and brought forth His light to the world. Now I want to do something here in the remainder of our time. I want to go to the book of Romans Because the message for us, the command for us, isn't to run harder, it's to believe. Believe that Jesus really ran that hard. To repent, to turn, and to entrust ourselves to Jesus. And as believers, to rest in His finished work. And the truth that He will make all things right. And until then, we're left here as ambassadors, the citizens of the heavenly place. In the book of Revelation, and you're going to Romans chapter 1, but in the book of Revelation, one of the things I encourage you to do, it's not homework. It actually is. Give me a report. It's due tomorrow at 2. It's not. But read the book of Revelation in one sitting. And I want you to note the distinction between the people of God and the people of Babylon or the people of this earth. And what you'll see is a clear distinction between the people of this world that are marked by worldliness. They're marked by an allegiance and a life on this world. Don't try to ask and answer all the questions that come to mind. Just read it and note that distinction of the qualities that you see of the people of God, of the bride of Christ, where their treasure is and their, have, their, their uh, purpose is 
Their attention is. And just note those two distinctions. In the book of Romans, chapter 1 and chapter 12, we note the distinction of all people, first with the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, then with the Jews coming later on, chapter 2, but a people who are blinded in their idolatry. Their bodies are ruinous because of it. Their minds are ruinous because of it. And their worship is idol-filled and ruinous. And when we make our way finally to Romans chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we have this restored picture. The same people, if they will but believe in Christ, are moved from ruin to restoration. Restored in mind, restored in body, and restored in worship. But these people that walked in darkness and ruinous pagan ways are able to live and to worship in a way that is holy and honorable and perfect before the Lord. That's the gift of eternal life. That's the transformative good news of the gospel. So what I want to do with us is I want to read Romans 1, 18 through 28, and, and afterwards we'll come back and I'm going to highlight then some comparisons to Romans 12 so we can see the transformation in the text. You say, what changed? What's, what happened to these people in Romans 1? Well, they came into the light. Romans 1 should not shock us because it's the result of idolatry. It's life in the darkness. But by the grace of God, go we. So let's look at this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'll read through verse 28. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's idolatry. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. How? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's ruinous destruction. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. To what kind of mind? A debased mind. To do what ought not to be done. The text continues. But with that sitting heavy on our minds and hearts, flip to Romans chapter 12. Flip to Romans 12. If that was all you ever read of the book of Romans, it would be the saddest book you've ever read in your life, right? And I think you can look at that first chapter of Romans and you can see the trajectory of most all cultures in the history of the world on their own means. And yet we get to Romans chapter 12 and we're reminded of a people who are made as one, one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, 
one Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. And we get to Romans 12, 1 through 2. And look at the contrast. As a reminder, verse 24 we just read in Romans 1. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Now what's Romans 12 say has happened? He speaks to the, the bride of Christ, the beloved. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Idolatry led them to use their bodies for idol worship and self lusts and pride. Their bodies were tools of idol worship. And now, in Romans 12, he appeals to the brothers and sisters in the Lord by the mercies of God. Now you present your bodies. What happens to these bodies? Well, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. From verse 25 in chapter 1, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, idolatry, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. God in His grace, because of what Jesus Christ has done, is able to take idolaters and take them into people who live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. When we gather together in corporate worship, we sing to the Lord with our lips, we confess our sin together, we humble ourselves and fix our eyes on the Lord. Individually, we walk out in response, saying, Lord, I want to please you with my life and my mind and my attitude and my heart. Help me, to, my body, to live a life of worship for you this week. A living sacrifice. The Lord takes bodies of corruption and turns them into holy, holy living sacrifices. And what about our minds? We told us in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. A debased mind. What's the contrast to a debased mind? It's what God does for all who believe. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A debased mind is the opposite of that. God rewires and transforms for His glory. That's the good news that you have, believer. That's the good news for which we gather today. So may God, as we look at our country and we see increasing components of darkness echoed and celebrated and championed, let us not be moved to cynicism or bitterness. If we had a loved one that ran at this wall and would not stop until their teeth were coming out and they were not completely unconscious, it would be one of the most traumatic and grieving things we would ever see. And we wouldn't hate them for it. We'd be moved with them. We would want better for them. Stop. Come to the light. That's the goodness of the gospel. That's what the book of signs in John 1 through 12 does with the book of suffering. It says, look to Jesus, believe and worship him, and come into the light and the ruinous of your life that you're experiencing as a kingdom of fool's gold. That is the natural consequences of idolatry. So come to the light. Come to Jesus and live. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. What a charge God has given us as believers. 
young students, senior adults, and all in between. This is the charge that God has given us as we deploy to different places all throughout this week to proclaim a message of restoration in Christ to a people who are in ruinous ends. So, next steps. Three different next steps questions. One of these takes place for lunch today. And here's a question. How has worshiping Jesus delivered me from ruinous ways that once dominated my life? So first, we look at our own lives. We look at our pasts. We don't stay at our past. We press on. But as you look at your life and you look at how the Lord and His light has delivered you and protected you from so many ruinous things, take time over lunch to say, God, thank you for protecting me from this. Thank you for changing my mind and giving me peace and pleasure in doing your will and not in those former ruinous things in my life. So discuss those things. Discuss them with your family. Talk about some of the ruinous things that you see that God has protected you from. Not simply protected you from, but enabled you and called you to live a holy and pleasing life in those components. Second, Jesus is the only hope for blinded, idolatrous believers. Until one worships and walks by the light, they will act out their ruinous ends. So how might remembering this stir me to be both more loving and uncompromising in my longing for unbelievers to chiefly come to Christ this week? This is online and in person. We can only have one greatest desire from somebody. That's it. We can only have one greatest desire for them, for our kids, for everyone, for our neighbors. Our greatest desire is our church mission statement. Glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That has to be our chief desire for every neighbor, for every friend, for every coworker. God, would you give me an opportunity to steer this conversation toward you? Would you give them eyes to see? Because I cannot. So pray that the Lord would make that our ultimate chief end in our relationships, that this text would be a reminder of that. And then finally, one day we will be fully delivered from all idolatry and its ruinous effects upon our health, our relationships, and and government. So the final question to ponder, next step to take this week is, what are you most looking forward to the Lord restoring? All things totally. The new heavens and new earth. What component of restoration today are you most looking forward to? That's good news. That's reason to sing. So church family, would you stand with me as we sing in response to the proclaimed word of God?